My name is Dwayne Crumb. I'm blessed to be the director of an organization we called HIV Hope. I've been involved in studying HIV and AIDS since 1985, but I'll be honest with you, I didn't want to do it. I got involved in HIV in 85 because a member of the United States Congress asked me to be his press secretary, and I thought that would be fun. And then my first day on the job, he waited until after I was in, in the office. He said, now, by the way, everyone on my staff, I expect them to become my expert on at least one issue. And I started a list. You know, this is going to be fun. He said, your issue is HIV and AIDS. I thought, Ooh, I don't want to study that. I don't know anybody that has it. I don't, I'm not going to get it. It's not my problem. But it was my job. I spent the next two years in the Congress studying the subject from every possible angle with access to all of the government's information. I left there to, be, to work with an evangelist who does high school assemblies all over the United States. And I thought, this will be great. I'll be involved in evangelism. I'll go to the schools with Dave. And this is going to be so much fun. And I can forget all about HIV and AIDS. And my first week with him, he said, by the way, Dwayne, I think we need to use the information you have about HIV and AIDS to develop material for the schools. And I thought, God, you set me up. Have you ever been started to say the victim of a divine setup? But we're never God's victims, are we? The object of a divine setup? Well, started developing materials, and through that, the schools started saying we need more, and I ended up doing motivational assemblies in middle schools and high schools in 38 states. And then God changed my focus from young people in North America to working around the world. And I'm now blessed to be involved in doing seminars that empower local people to work together to develop innovative new ways of doing HIV education and ministry that are unique to their culture. So we spent a lot of time in the seminars in discussion with, with people talking among themselves about what, how in this culture do we motivate people. Because you see, HIV education is far more about motivation than just information. Just giving people facts doesn't accomplish much in terms of behavior. People need to be motivated, but effective motivation always comes from within a culture, not from the outside. As outsiders, we don't know how to motivate people, but people in the culture do. And one of the key factors, and one of the things that I want to make sure we say right off the top, HIV is not just about disease. It's not just about medicine. It's not just about facts and figures. It's about people. If we lose sight of the people, we fail. One of the plenary speakers a few years ago here at GMHC said when he was in medical school, he came to the understanding that, that the patients he was dealing with were malfunctioning machines, and his job as a physician was to fix the machine. In the process, you lose sight of the fact that these are people. And if we lose sight of the people, we're not going to be effective. So in everything that we at HIV Hope do, you'll find it's about people, because that is so key. Now, I want to start off by giving you some of the sources that I find helpful for updated information. Uh, the first one I'll give you is my own email address, and if you have questions or if you see things, if you'd like to discuss things you've seen, I'd be more than happy to correspond with you. You can contact me through info at hivhope.net. Uh, there are three other sources that I find very helpful to provide short presentations of articles and studies and research that's being published around the world. The, the first one is one I've just become aware of, and it's out of the United Kingdom. It's called AIDSMap.com. Uh, and you can subscribe to this, and you will at least once a week receive from them an email that will give you news research that, that they're working on and also references to other sources of of new information. So I think this is one that you'll find very helpful. 
Another is prevention news. Uh, this is a CDC one that provides uh, updates or, or just brief summaries of articles from publications around the U.S. and around the world. And I find this one to be very useful. And then one specifically on Africa, there's a Yahoo group that people from all over Africa send in and they, they gather information for publications in Africa. So all of these are valuable sources of information so that you don't have to have me to provide your information. Uh, one of the keys, one of the most important things that I do, one of my primary focuses is working myself out of a job. And so if I can refer you to the sources, then you don't need me. So all of these can be helpful to you. Um, one of the sources that I go to every two years is the International AIDS <coughs> Conference. And in July, this last July, it was in Washington, D.C. And all of these topics were brought up. Some of these you're probably familiar with. There was a lot of talk at the International, Conference, International AIDS Conference about a cure for HIV. Far, far more hopeful talk about it at this conference than I've ever heard before. In fact, this was the most hopeful International AIDS Conference, the third one I've attended, the most hopeful one I've ever been to. Now, they're talking about a cure, but nobody knows how to do it yet. And we're still probably at least a decade away from anything that would be close to a cure. We're probably also at least a decade away from any kind of a vaccine that would be effective. Microbicide, of course, would be uh, something that a woman could put in her vagina before sex that would uh, prevent or reduce her risk of infection with HIV if her partner is infected. Uh, you've probably heard about PrEP. Who can tell me what PrEP, P-R-E-P, stands for? No? Pre-exposure prophylaxis. This is using ARVs, particularly in high-risk groups, uh, IV drug users, prostitutes, uh, men who have sex with men, and giving them uh, ARVs as a way of preventing infection or reducing their risk of becoming infected. It's very closely related to PEP. Now, what's that? Post-exposure prophylaxis. Those of you in the medical field are familiar with this because if you have an accidental needle stick, then ARVs can be used for post-exposure prophylaxis. Well, they've now moved that to PrEP, P-R-E-P. Uh, do you know what MMC stands for? These are all initials that if you're in the HIV field, you're going to see. Do you know what MMC stands for? MMC is medical male circumcision. Uh, in 2006 at the International AIDS Conference, the topic, big topic of discussion was male circumcision because studies had just been released and they've been confirmed since that found that men who are circumcised are about 60% less likely to become infected than men who are not circumcised. So the big topic at that conference and every conference since is how do we get all of the adult men in Africa circumcised? Um, frankly, the way it's being pushed, I'm a little uncomfortable with because what's going to motivate an adult male to undergo an uncomfortable, unpleasant procedure like that? If, 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 if you're married, if you're a woman who's married and your husband came home one night and said, I think I'm going to go get circumcised to reduce our risk of infection, what's your reaction going to be? Are you going to be excited about that? Why does he want to get circumcised? Because he's having, planning on having sex with other women, right? You see, <clears throat> the whole idea is it reduces the risk for the man, but it only reduces the risk for the woman by reducing her risk of being with a man who is infected. And when you go around Africa, I was just in Kenya, you have posters advertising medical male circumcision, and all of them have feature pictures of beautiful women. The way it's being marketed is problematic. And the one thing that almost, there's almost no discussion about is how do we 
motivate and encourage those cultures that don't traditionally circumcise their male children to start doing that. That's a, a strategy that would have a significant long-term impact, but long-term impacts are not the kind of things funders are typically looking for. Dan? You said uh, 60%? Yes. 60% reduction in, in risk of infection, yes. The other thing is, if you see, <coughs> if you are circumcised, and you see a poster that says, stop AIDS, be circumcised, how, what's that say to you? If you've been circumcised, you're safe, right? But you're not. It's only a 60% reduction. There are millions of men who have been uh, circumcised who have also become infected. It's still... They still become infected. Uh, TNT. Do you know what TNT stands for? TNT is the abbreviation for a strategy that's called test and treat. Now, the idea here is that as soon as someone tests positive for infection with HIV, they ought to immediately be start receiving antiretroviral treatment because, well, uh, well, Anyway, because when you are uh, under HIV, under antiretroviral treatment, it lowers your viral load, reduces the risk that you will transmit it to other people. Now, we'll get into some of these in a little more detail. Throughout the, the International AIDS Conference, I kept hearing this. We're looking toward, in the foreseeable future, the end of AIDS, the end of this epidemic. I pray that they're right. My fear is that we're offering what at least in the immediate future is false hope. One of the things we don't hear anything about is saving sex for marriage. In fact, there was a, an article recently talking about the concept that abstinence doesn't work, so use condoms. At the conference, there was... Uh, a booth, and I've, they've had a booth at every conference I've been to that had this poster. And the theme of the poster was abstinence has a high failure rate because people who are abstaining don't continue to abstain. The interesting thing is that this particular poster uh, was provided by people of faith for condoms, actually Roman Catholics pushing condoms. So some very interesting things going on in the AIDS world, things that you might not expect. You're frowning. <laughs> that wasn't what you were expecting. I understand. There was a, an article written, written recently that talked about our limited understanding of the experience of young people who choose to and successfully abstain from sex and the lack of HIV prevention interventions for abstinence youth. There's just not enough being done. The author said, as a society, our default position on abstinence is that it is a ludicrous, impossible expectation. Is that true? I don't think so. I believe there are an awful, in fact, every study I can find tells me that the majority of young people <coughs> are not having sex, are not sexually experienced, and that's true cross cultures. Now, more and more are, but when everything you hear is saying it's ludicrous and impossible expectation for young people to save sex for marriage, what's that say to young people? Don't even try. It's not worth trying. You can't do it. So we are, it's, it's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies. By pushing that, we're moving young people to be sexually active, sexually active earlier with more and more partners. That scares me. Treatment is prevention. T-A-S-P, or it's also abbreviated uh, T-N. Actually, the way I had it before was wrong, wasn't it? Sorry. What's needed for the success of treatment is prevention. Number one is availability of antiretrovirus. Now, earlier I said treatment is prevention is the concept that when we re significantly reduce viral load, people are less likely to transmit the virus to other people. So what they're doing is they're suggesting that as soon as someone tests positive, by the way, the, te the screening test that we use for 
Is it, a, is it an HIV test? Is it right? Is it correct to call it an HIV test? What do you think? Larry's shaking his head no. Why not? It's an antibody test. Right. Why is that important? Why is it important to distinguish this between this being an HIV test and an antibody test? The reason is that there is that window period, that 90 days after infection, when someone can test positive even though they are infected. If it were an HIV test, it would be a test looking for HIV. We wouldn't have that window period. But it takes time for antibodies to develop. The result is there is a time, 90 days, in which someone could be infected and still test negative. So, but... One of the things that's necessary for success is availability of ARVs. Right now, in most of the countries with the highest infection rates, they are only able to get 25, 30, maybe 35% of the people that qualify for ARVs onto treatment. Now, qualify for ARVs means that their T-cell count or their CD4 count has gotten below a threshold. Uh, the World Health Organization recommends a threshold of 350 T-cell count. Most countries are using a threshold now of 250. Going, They can't get it up to 350, and even at 250, they're only able to get 25, 30, 35% of the people that qualify at that level onto ARVs. Treatment as prevention says... You could have a T-cell count of 1,200 and we'll still put you on ARVs to keep your T-cell count from going lower. <coughs> we don't have enough ARVs to do that. More than that, there are not enough medical personnel. There just aren't enough doctors and nurses in the developing world to provide what's necessary at the levels, at the thresholds we're currently using, much less the treatment is prevention. Uh, there isn't enough testing equipment or testing capacity for testing viral load, CD4 count, and so on. Uh, and because suppression of viral load is what test and treat is all about. If we're not suppressing the viral load, if we're not getting the viral load down to or close to an undetectable level, <clears throat> then test and treat is not particularly effective because the whole focus, the whole premise for test and treat is that the lower your viral load, the less the risk your part, you have of transmitting the virus to your partner. That's a problem. And by the way, when I was uh, in, at, at the International AIDS Conference in Washington, nobody was talking about any, even trying to find a way to increase the number of doctors and nurses in sub-Saharan Africa. We're not even addressing this subject. And that, to me, is, is a major, major problem. And if you have any suggestions for ways to do that, I mean, there was a, a something published uh, not too long ago from Swaziland. And the article said that, that there are more nurses in Swaziland dying every year than they are graduating from their nursing colleges. That's just those dying of HIV. We're going backwards. So <coughs> test, uh, treatment as prevention, may be, test and treat or treatment as, as prevention may be effective in the developed world, in the U.S., in Europe. It may be a realistic strategy here, but in the areas where it's the greatest problem, it's just not realistic. Now, just to make sure you have a basic understanding of what we're talking about, this is a, a diagram that, that we use in, in when we're doing seminars. Uh, the antibodies are what's being tested for in, a, in an antibody test, a screening test. Until the antibodies get up to a certain level, the test can't detect them. So this is a 90-day period. Now, there are many people who will develop antibodies and test positive much sooner than 90 days, but 90 days is the time that virtually everyone who is infected will test positive. One of the key problems <clears throat> is that the viral load 
is at its highest level during that same 90-day period. So people are most infectious during the same 90 days during which they can test negative. That's a big problem. Uh, And then this is T-cell count. And, of course, T-cells are the the watchmen of the immune system. The T-cells are the cells in the immune system that identify invaders and alert the immune system that your body is under attack. When someone is, when the T cell count gets low, then there aren't enough watchmen in the immune system to alert the body that, that it's under attack, and that's what results in AIDS. That's why people with this disease are vulnerable to other diseases. So over time, T cell count goes down as viral load goes up. Now what we're, what happens with antiretrovirals is that we change that. When someone goes on to ARVs, their viral load goes down, their T-cell count goes up, and they can live, who knows at this point, how long. We've only been using ARVs generally since 1996, so we don't really know the long term, but the, the, the effect of ARVs is wonderful if and when people take them consistently, take them properly, because if they don't take them consistently, take them properly, then the virus can mutate into uh, forms that are resistant to the medication so that the medications they're on will no longer be effective and they have to move on to more expensive ones and so on. <coughs> if you have questions, please stop me. I'm going fast because we've only got 50 minutes, but I, I want to open this to your questions. and Any questions at this point? Okay, fine. PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, uh, actually post-exposure prophylaxis is PEP. Uh, it's in use in healthcare settings. It's also in use in some cases in rape scenarios. Uh, there's been discussion about offering it to people who have, are in high-risk situations. Uh, there's, there's been discussion about other ways to use it, including pre-exposure prophylaxis. Prophylaxis. Yes, there is some indication that, can, that it can be effective. Uh, in fact, there was one session that I attended in Washington where they were the, the presenter was as a contract with the U.S. government to test a program to offer pre-exposure prophylaxis to anyone, anybody that wants it in Kenya. Again, if we can't get enough medication for people who need, because they're sick, ARVs, and if we don't have enough doctors and nurses, does it make sense for us to be offering pre-exposure prophylaxis to people who want to have multiple partners and don't, don't want to have, take their, or want to reduce their risk of infection? To me, it doesn't. I don't know about you. <coughs> Obviously, <coughs> there's a. Cost. <coughs> Shouldn't have taken that drink of water. There's a cost <coughs> for the medication, <coughs> as well as a cost in terms of having enough people, uh, <coughs> personnel, and the infrastructure to prevent to provide it. Resistance relates to <coughs> adherence, whether people will actually take the medication and take them consistently. We're getting more and more indication that from research that people who were never sick are less likely to adhere to treatment than people who get the medication before they start getting sick. If someone is on the brink of death, and they start taking our ARVs, and suddenly they start getting better, and they, they d- get to a point of really good health, they're highly motivated not to get back to where they were before. But someone who was never sick at all with HIV disease starts taking ARVs, it's more difficult for them. It's like somebody that's taking uh, <clears throat> medication for tuberculosis. How many of them follow through and take it all the way? 
people on, on antibiotics take the medicine until they feel better and then they stop taking it. Well, if somebody has never got, been sick with HIV disease, they get ARVs, they start taking them, but it's a, it's a very rigid, it's not an easy, uh, regimen. There is a, a high rate of, or a very real risk of people not following through, not adhering to treatment, which can result in, in resistant strains. Test and treat, we've talked about this involved already some. What's involved with uh, test and treat, <clears throat> it involves, the key is reducing viral load. Getting people to take the medication uh, and, and con- consistently take it so that the viral load gets down. Does it work? There is indication that it does. In fact, there was a study that came out within the last about 12 months that found that in discordant couples, where you have a couple where one person is infected and the other is not, if the one who is infected, if their viral load gets down close to or to an undetectable level, the risk of the uninfected partner becoming infected reduces 96%. That's dramatic. That's exciting. That's the kind of thing that pushes us to say, we need to get everybody that's infected with HIV on ARVs. The question is, is that really practical? We get excited about it, but in real life, does it work? We don't know. Concerns include cost, scaling up, what it, what we, the process of scaling up, uh, adherence factors, personnel, and so on. Prevention of mother-to-child transmission. And you'll find if you get involved in this field or if you are involved in this field, there are more and more people who don't like prevention of mother-to-child transmission. They don't like that name, PMTCT, because it suggests that the mother is at fault for the baby's infection. And so they think it's discriminatory to call it that. I'm whatever. I'll just leave that there. That's what's being talked about. So you may start seeing other names for it. Antiretrovirus are what is used. Now, up until recently, the focus has been on single-dose nevirapine in uh, resource-poor settings like uh, the developing world where a mother will be given – well, the key to reducing transmission from mother to child – it's also called vertical transmission – the key to this is reducing the mother's – well, the first key to it is getting all women who are pregnant tested. Women who are pregnant need to be tested because if they are not tested, there's about a 30, 35, in some cases 40% risk that the baby, their baby will be born infected. Now, there are an awful lot of people around the world who believe that if a mother is infected, 100% of the babies will be infected because there are a lot of people that believe that the mother and the baby share the same blood supply, and so it's automatic. But really, it's only about... 30, 35, maybe 40%. We can drop that just with a single dose of an ARV uh, for the mother and for the baby down in half, 15, 18%. With more ARV treatment before and, and shortly after birth, that can be reduced even further. It can also be reduced by cesarean section. There are a number of of ways of reducing transmission, and in fact, in hospitals in this country, uh, many of them are are approaching the point of 1% or less transmission from HIV-positive mothers to their babies. How practical that's going to be in the developing world, how close we can get to that, we still don't know. But that's wonderful. That's exciting. If we can protect that many babies from infection, but then after the baby is born, then we need to get we need to know, is the baby infected? Because if the baby is infected, then the baby needs to get on to antiretroviral treatment because babies who are born infected typically will not reach their second birthday without treatment because their immune systems are not mature. They're not, there's not as much for HIV to, to attack, so they're more vulnerable to infection. The problem is 
that when a baby is born, the baby is born with the mother's antibodies to whatever antibodies the mother has. So if a mother tests positive for infection with HIV, the baby will test positive. So how do we know whether that baby is infected or not? And we don't want to put all of the babies born to infected mothers on antiretroviral therapy because it's, it's very strong medicine. We don't want to be doing that. So they are working on, and there are some, some, there's some hopeful signs of tests that will be available so that we can test earlier. Now, yes, there are tests that we use in this country where we can identify babies who are or not infected very early. But again, these are far more expensive tests that aren't available <clears throat> in many areas of the world, but there are less expensive ones that are now being developed. That's wonderful. Then there's the whole issue of breastfeeding. Should a mother who is living with HIV breastfeed her child? What? Depends on what? Whether she has what do you mean by safe formula? Oh, okay. So it's it, it's not the formula that's that might not be safe. It's the water that the formula is mixed with. Okay. We need to be clear on this. Yeah, the the formula is expensive, and the water that it's mixed with often will have organisms in it that put the baby at greater risk of in fact of death from other diseases than they would be from infection with HIV. Because mothers who, who breastfeed their babies, about 15% of those babies become infected through breastfeeding. So if there is a reliable, consistent source of, of formula and safe water, and let's get away from the idea of talking about clean water, okay? The fact that the water looks clean does not mean it's safe. Understand what I'm saying? We, I hear all the time people talking about we need to get people clean water. No, it's not clean. It's safe water. That's the key. So if they have a reliable su supply of safe water uh, and formula, then so there's, a, there's an adequate, reliable source of substitution nutrition, then they're better off not breastfeeding if the culture will allow it. Now, one of the problems is the stigma is so great <coughs> in so many places that if a woman is not breastfeeding her baby, that tells her community, her village, that she's probably living with HIV, and so she is then subject to stigma, and there's a whole other set of problems that come from that. This is very, very complicated. Okay? Yes? Diarrheal diseases are a problem. Oh, one of the other problems with breastfeeding is that in some villages, breastfeeding is a communal activity. So if, if this mother is not available and the baby is sick, another mother will feed the baby from her breast without being tested. So if you have one HIV-infected mother in a community, that mother could potentially infect several of the babies in the community. You, we have mothers who are not lactating, and so they have a wet nurse, but they don't do HIV testing on the wet nurse, so the wet nurse may be HIV positive. All of these things. How long should, if a mother is living with HIV and is breastfeeding the baby, how long should she breastfeed? Exclusively. In other words, not giving any other food because the other foods can, can uh, irritate the, the digestive tract and make infection easier. So exclusive breastfeeding, four to six months. What's that four to six months based on? See, we have to tell people why in order for this to make sense. Why do we say four to six months? Two reasons. One, at four to six months, the baby can tolerate other foods and, and do well with just other food without the breast milk. 
two, at about that age, what's happening in the baby? Huh? Immune system, yeah, to some degree, although not necessarily. What else is happening with that baby? It's developing teeth. What happens when the baby develops teeth? The baby starts ingesting not only breast milk, but blood, potentially. The blood has a much higher viral load than the breast milk. So when, a, when the baby starts teething, it doesn't matter what age the baby is. When the baby starts teething, they should disconnect, get, discontinue breastfeeding. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Um, when I was in Africa a few years ago, one of the strategies was promoting goat milk as an alternative because it's nutritionally better than cow's milk for, for an infant. And, and there's a greater supply of goat milk. Than in many cultures. Yeah, goat, goat milk is another alternative. Another one that's been tried is boiling milk, boiling the mother's milk, because HIV uh, can't survive the heat. The problem is there are a lot of places where there's just not an adequate supply of fuel for, for doing that, and, and they may heat it for a time but not long enough. These things all get very complicated. But there are issues and, and strategies that need to be considered and addressed and evaluated. Yes. Anything else? Okay. Now, one of the things that they're talking about now, and this is very recent, I never heard about it until the International AIDS Conference in July, is the B-plus option. The B-plus, the A option is single-dose single ARV. B is, is a, uh, a longer course of antiretrovirals. B-plus was started in Malawi. It's now being uh, planned in Uganda, and WHO has given approval for it. And that is the idea that, that when a mother, when an infected woman or pregnant woman tests positive, she's put on ARV therapy and is continued on ARV therapy for life. Not only does that reduce the risk of the mother infecting the baby through breastfeeding, but it also increases the likelihood that that mother will be there to raise the child, which is obviously a very valuable consideration. Uh, there have been some studies published recently that indicate that this is a cost-effective strategy. There's a question about adherence because there was a study just published within the last month saying that after giving birth, the mothers do not adhere uh, particularly well, but it's important because it is a strategy that increases the likelihood that the baby will not become an orphan, which is a, a very important issue. Uh, there was a pub, an, an article stud, uh, published just within the last 30 days indicating that when a woman starts ARVs during uh, pregnancy, uh, it can result in low birth weight, preterm delivery, small uh, babies that are small for gestational age, stillbirth, uh, and neonatal death. So there are some issues that, that may be a problem. We still at this point don't know. The authors of that article, uh, this was a study that was done, I think, in Botswana, uh, are not saying that we shouldn't be starting ARVs, but we need to be aware of these kind of potential adverse outcomes. In the United States, most HIV-positive Americans lack regular care. Only 25% of Americans with HIV have their virus under control, according to a CDC report reduced at the International AIDS Conference. Now, remember, we were talking about test and treat. We were talking about pre-exposure prophylaxis. We're talking about all of these things to get people onto medication. Test and treat is based on the idea of getting your viral load under control. If there's anywhere in the world that we're going to be able to do that, it should be the United States. But only 25% of Americans with HIV have their virus under control. There are a lot of issues here that need to be considered. Uh, African Americans, 81% have been diagnosed, but 34, only 34% are, are retained on care. Uh, only 29% have been prescribed antiretroviral therapy, and only 21% are virally suppressed. 
Americans ages 25 to 34 who have HIV, 72% have been diagnosed, 28% receive, receive regular care, and 15% are virally suppressed. These are not encouraging numbers in what should be the country where we would have the best numbers. If this is true here, what's it like in other parts of the world? I find this alarming. Uh, there's a new article just published the 18th, 19th of October. says that Africa is facing a spike in older people living with HIV. Uh, and they're talking about 3 million people age 50 and older currently live with HIV in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, there are an awful lot of people that hear about that the, the life expectancy in many countries in Africa is only 40, 45 years, and they think, are there really people in Africa who are over 50? Yes, there are a lot of people in Africa over 50. That's the average life expectancy at birth. But there are dramatically increasing numbers, both because of ARVs that are helping people who are infected with HIV to live longer, uh, and also because, and frankly, the population in America with the fastest growing infection rate with HIV is people over 50. Because people over 50 think this is a young person's disease, so people my age don't think they're at risk. And then you have things like Viagra and Cialis and so on that are extending people's sexually active lifetimes. There are a lot of issues here. But Africa is not really prepared for this. These are things that I've just put in in detail because I just got them. Uh, this is a, a new cheap ultra-sensitive test spot for, for HIV and other uh, and cancer and other diseases, a new uh, thing that may well become available very soon that is very, very highly effective. One of the things that's happening in this country is that they're saying doctors don't ask and patients don't tell. Doctors around the country are not asking their patients about issues uh, that could put them at, that could result in them being, being infected. They're not encouraging patients to be tested. Uh, studies in both New York and Chicago found. So there are a lot of issues in that area. We're not doing a very effective job of getting people tested and getting them into treatment, even here. I've gone real quick over an awful lot of stuff. What questions do you have? What are, you, what are your thoughts? What are your reactions? Tell me what you think. I wanted this to be interactive, but then there was so much stuff. <laughs> Didn't do a very good job of that. Anything? Yes. So the question is, what strategies are we finding effective in the developing world uh, to increase adherence? Uh, yes, there are cultural barriers. One of the things that people in the United States can't comprehend that I find fascinating is that if you live in a village in Africa and you're taking medicine, everyone in the village knows it. My neighbors have no idea whether I'm taking medicine or not. But you can't live in an African village and have people not know that you're taking medicine. So one of the big keys, and you touched on it, is stigma. We have to be finding ways to reduce stigma. In fact, not just reduce stigma. We need to be finding ways to transition cultures from stigmatizing and discriminating against people with this disease to showing care and compassion and offering hope to people living, not just getting rid of the negative, but replacing it with a positive. As we do that, then adherence will go up because people will be more comfortable. One of the issues with adherence is that if you live in a village, you may need to travel a day's travel to get your medication. It may not be available to you immediately. Uh, the more, again, the more the, the key to adherence is, is, is replacing stigma with compassion. Uh, and that's, that's my big concern in that area. It seems like the wide open 
absolutely it's a wide open door for the local church. And one of the tragedies is, as I travel the world, I see the church, particularly the evangelical church, as being the, the largest single source of stigma as opposed to the organization that's overcoming stigma. I, I, in the seminars that I do, one of the questions that I ask on the survey the first day of the seminar is, is AIDS God's judgment, a judgment from God? And it's not uncommon for a majority of the people to say yes. It's not uncommon. I did one seminar in Kenya last year. Every pastor in the seminar said yes. What were they preaching? Now, praise God, at the end of the week, everyone gave very detailed answers as to why it is not a judgment from God. That's exciting for me. But we need to be doing more education. We need to be focusing on the church. We need to be focusing on Bible schools and pastors' conferences and and helping the church leaders recognize that this is not a judgment from God. This is a, a disease. To me, the key scripture relative to HIV and AIDS is John 10.10. You know John 10.10? Jesus is talking, and he says, the thief. Who's the thief? Who's Jesus referred to as the thief? Satan, right? The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Does HIV steal? You better believe it. Does it kill? Does it destroy? You know it. See, HIV is a strategy of the enemy. It's not a judgment from God. It's it's a strategy that Satan is using. But Jesus goes on in the end of that verse to say, but I've come that you can have life, and that more abundantly, fulfilling life. If you want to have a fulfilling life, live your life the way God designed it as as he spelled out in Scripture. To me, that is such a key verse for this whole subject. It's, it's the enemy's strategy. It's the exact opposite of what God wants to do, of, of what Jesus has for us. So let's, let's change our focus. I'm sorry, I'll, if I'm not careful, I'll start preaching if I haven't already. <laughs> yes? Well, I like what you said because there's a difference between you know, consequences of sin and, and judgment. You know? Well, yeah, and but, you talk that, about, you see, my belief is that the reason to save sex for marriage is not just because there's punishment if you not, don't. The reason saving sex for marriage has been a brilliant strategy throughout history, even before there was any talk of HIV. You know, the, the reason to save sex for, for marriage is not to avoid HIV. It's because of all the benefits that come from it. You want an abundant life? Abundant sex life? Save sex for marriage. But I, what I was going to say was, um, as in regards to her question, I was... Uh, been uh, back to Ethiopia a few times in Addis with Andy Warren's project, and one of the most encouraging things was, I think it was about two or three years ago, it was either a, a leading bishop or an archbishop in the Orthodox Church that uh, went out and actually publicly on video got himself tested for ah, HIV, yes. even though he's not at risk, Right. but it sure it made a big scandal, and so why, you, must have been, you must be doing for the sake of the recording, I'm going to repeat and summarize what you said. In Ethiopia, a church leader publicly got tested, uh, got an antibody test. And, and that's wonderful. In fact, that's something that the church leaders, it's very effective for church leaders to publicly be tested and then publicly share the results of their test, even if it's positive. That's tough. But one of the other things is there are more and more churches in the developing world that are setting themselves up as testing sites. So that, you see, one of the problems is I've had people tell me I won't even walk on the same side of the street as where the voluntary testing and counseling center is because I don't want people to see me that close to that building, much less walking in or out of that door. Remember, we're talking about cultures that are so communal, everybody knows what everybody's doing. You can't do anything anonymously. Nothing. You can't do anything in secret. There's no such thing. Everybody knows. And so people are so afraid of being thought to be involved in something they shouldn't be that they won't go to a testing center or even be seen near it. But they will go to a church. 
So if the church offers that, and of course it's voluntary testing and counseling, the church can also provide counseling, not only HIV-related counseling, but also spiritual counseling. Yes? So what can we do here to get the numbers up for people actually getting the ARVs or whatever they need So what can we do here in the U.S. and around the world to get the numbers up of people that are getting tested and treated? The key is overcoming stigma. The key is getting people to say, to treat, to think of people living with HIV the same way we do people with cancer. You know, if, 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 if you could have a, a red ribbon campaign like the pink ribbon campaign that we've been having lately, you know, we've got to begin to recognize that HIV is a disease. It's not a judgment. It's not a consequence of sin. It's not an indication of sin. We've got to get, we've got to, to break that connection because there are so many people who are living with HIV not because of any specific, you know, AIDS is in the world because of sin. But it's not, if I was living with HIV, it wouldn't necessarily because of, be because of any specific sin that I'd committed. We've got to break that linkage. Yes? Are you familiar with the uh, research that's being done in the nutraceutical aloe vera for uh, boosting the immune system? There's a lot of research you're asking about Aloe vera research, I've not seen that particular research, but I, there's, there's a, research is being done in every area that you can imagine and a lot that I can't imagine. It, the, 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 the research, we've, we learned more about HIV in the first 10 years after it was discovered between 81 and 91 than we had learned about any disease in the history of man. The, the volume of understanding that we have about this disease is absolutely amazing. It's wonderful. We've got to keep it up. One of the problems is we're getting to a point of, of HIV fatigue, AIDS fatigue, where people are tired of hearing about it, tired of thinking about it, tired of funding it. There are some real problems there. I see I've run out of time. There are some sheets going around where if you would be interested in getting on our mailing list, or staying in touch with us, please put your sticker on one of those sheets. We'd be glad to stay in touch. I can be reached at Duane at HIVHope.net. We'd love to talk with you. If any would, anyone would be interested in being involved in or exploring the, the HIV education seminars that we do, I'd love to talk to you. Thank you for your participation. Thanks for being here. God bless you. Have a great day.